I think most of you guys remember who uh, Lance Armstrong is. Uh, he's a guy that was in the cycling world. I mean, he was on top of his game. I mean, probably at the, at the height of everything in, in his uh, career, there probably people didn't think he was defeatable. I mean, he, he was amazing. And then through his own life struggle uh, with cancer, he uh, developed a, um, a ministry called Live Strong. And so how many of you remember those, those yellow bracelets uh, that just about everybody was wearing at the time? And what about a politician by the name of Anthony Weiner? And I, whenever I even hear it now, whenever you mention that name, there's a snicker. You know, there's almost a, like a chuckle. But this guy, if you've you got to remember, at the beginning of, of his career, he was at the top. Uh, everybody wanted to know what his opinion was. There was always a mic in his face, and he was kind of a rising star in the Democratic Party. And what about Bill Cosby? You know, I don't remember him just as Mr. Huxtable. I remember him as the guy on Saturday morning cartoons with the Fat Albert kids. And, and that always ended with kind of this really, really neat moral story. And so Bill Cosby in my generation was kind of the father figure of our time. And what about Tiger Woods? I mean, here's a guy from a young age that was this phenom in golf. And, you know, there's a lot of people, both young and old, that wanted to be like Tiger Woods. I mean, he finished, he, he started out really strong. That's what all these guys I've brought up have in common, is they started out really strong. But they also shared something else in common. They all finished poorly. So today we're going to continue on in this series, the last seven uh, words of Jesus Christ. And, and when he was hanging on the cross, I want to go over just a little bit the, the first four statements that have been shared with you so far. Uh, first, you, you saw them on the screen in the video. First, Jesus looked down at the very people that were killing him, the people that were crucifying him on the cross, and he prayed for them, and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then he looked to the thief on the cross next to him who had accepted him as who he was, as the Messiah. And Jesus told him, Surely you will be with me in paradise today. Then he looked down on the cross at his mother and he said, Woman, behold your son. And he looked at his apostle and said, Behold your mother. He left his mother in the care of the one that he loved. And John and finally, he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And so today we're going to talk about those last three statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. I want to start in the book of John, chapter 19, when it says this, Later, knowing that everything had been finished and that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Probably don't pay a whole lot of attention to but I'll tell you what I believe this signified. I think that it was, a, it was basically an indication of Jesus' humanity. That Jesus at this point was thirsty. And so sometimes, you know, I don't know of any Christian, I really can't tell you of any Christian, any believer that I know that would argue much about the deity or the Godship of Christ. It's something that we full well accept, that Jesus was God. But I'll tell you, something, something that we don't really uh, pay a whole lot of attention to and something I think we gloss over is that Jesus was human. 
Though he was God, Jesus was also fully human. And so sometimes we set that aside. And when we set aside that humanity, when we kind of ignore that, then I think we're in danger of missing out on the example that Christ lived for us while he walked on this earth. Christ lived that example for us so that we can know how to fulfill the the commission that he's given us. So Jesus said he was thirsty. But have you noticed in the scriptures before uh, that Jesus was offered a drink before this? It says in the book of Matthew, it says, There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And so this happened on Golgotha. This was at the end of the, the, the journey uh, towards the cross. It happened on that hill in Golgotha. It says when, that there, that's where he was offered it. That's where it happened. I've got a picture I want to share with you from my trip. This is actually a photo of the shrine in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And this is said to be Calvary. This is where Jesus was crucified. They've built a a huge church over this area. There's another photo I want to show you that's an enclosure to what's believed to be the tomb of Jesus. And I think the wait while we were there was about three hours to get in there to to touch the slab of marble where Jesus was supposedly uh, was laid to rest, but we, we didn't really worry about going in there because we knew he wasn't there. And so we knew he's no longer there anymore, so it wasn't worth the wait. So Golgotha is this, uh, it's a common quarry. And in the first century, it was outside the, uh, the gates of, of Jerusalem. It was outside specifically the Damascus gate. And you know, the crucifixion was, was something that the Romans had developed, is something that they had uh, had pretty much made an art out of it. And it was at this location, because it was a high spot, just outside the walls on the road to Damascus. It was a very highly traveled road at the time, and so if you were coming and going from Jerusalem, that's pretty much where you would have came and went. And so they wanted this place to be visible where the bodies would hang on the crosses. And so it was a reminder, don't mess with the Romans. Uh, don't, don't revolt. Don't uh, don't mess with us at all. So it was very purposeful, this very visible on this, this kind of high traffic road. And so actually in Jerusalem, uh, there are two traditional places where Jesus was crucified and buried. It doesn't make sense, right? Uh, there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and then outside another gate of the old city is a place called the Garden Tomb. And it's a tomb, a first century tomb that they had found uh, that some claim uh, mostly Protestants, that that's where Jesus was crucified and buried. Now, if you ask me, based on the evidence that I know, based on what I've seen, uh, my opinion is that the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is probably the right location. And I think that because of its proximity to what was called the Antonio Fortress that was part of the Temple Mount. That's where Pontius Pilate would have been and where he would have no doubt judged Jesus. And it's kind of a straight path to the Damascus Gate from there. So that's my opinion. You guys can look up uh, that on your own. So Jesus was offered this drink, and when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Now, I used to think that's because it probably tasted bad. And because, you know, it was mixed with gall. I mean, it doesn't even sound good, does it? And when we think of gall, we think of maybe something putrid. Uh, But really, that's not the case. What gall was was basically a narcotic. It was a painkiller. 
And so this was kind of a merciful offering. They mixed it with this light acidic wine. It was kind of the common drink of the Roman soldiers at the time. And so it was an offering to the condemned to relieve the pain of what was about to happen. Now what doesn't make sense there is the Romans really didn't care much about mercy. They wanted it to be a painful existence. They wanted this to be as painful as they could possibly make it. But historians think that it was the women that were offering this, this mercy to the condemned. And so why did Jesus turn down this drink? Um, I think, you know, it's my, my opinion is, is because Jesus didn't want anything to, to basically affect his faculties, his, his thinking. He didn't want to maybe cry out uh, when, from taking this, being under the influence of this narcotic. And I think this too points to the humanity of Jesus, that a narcotic would have had an effect on a human. But I think more importantly, this was Jesus basically choosing obedience to his Father's will. It says that, you know, if you read, if you study the life of Christ, Jesus was always obedient. It was a priority that he had to be obedient to the Father's will. And so it wasn't finished yet. It wasn't time. And so I think that's why he turned down uh, this relief that was offered to him. And so Jesus was thirsty. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy that Randy shared with us last week in the book of Psalms. That the Messiah would thirst. But this is just one prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. There were many, many prophecies about the Messiah that, that came true with Jesus. Uh, one in particular was the triumphal entry. That's in the book of Zechariah. Not only was it prophesied that he would make this triumphal entry, but it was detailed. There was a detailed description of how he would do it, and Jesus fulfilled that. In the book of Isaiah, it says that he'd be rejected by his own people. In the book of John, we see when he returned uh, to Nazareth, his hometown, this small little village of maybe 150 people, he was first welcomed into the synagogue, but then shortly they tried to kill him. They tried to push him off the cliffs outside of the city. And so it was prophesied that he'd be rejected by his own people, the Messiah would. It was also said that he'd stand silent before his accusers. And we see in the book of Mark that Jesus did exactly that. Randy also shared with us that soldiers uh, would divide up his clothes from the book of Psalms. And in the book of Numbers, it says that no bones in the Messiah would be broken, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, and that he would die as a sacrifice for our sins, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would rise from the dead, and that he'd be seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. You know, some people kind of make the argument that, well... Jesus probably just made a list of these prophecies because he knew Scripture, and he just set out to check those off and, and to fulfill the Scriptures. And uh, that, that's kind of a, an interesting thing to think, but if you look at the book of Micah, it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then if you look at the book of Hosea, it says that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. And then in Isaiah, that he would be from the line of David. Now, if you're going to make the argument that he chose to fulfill these from a checklist, kind of as a trick, uh, how in the world did he control where he was born? 
And how would, how would he have had any say about where his parents took him as a child? And how would he have any control over his ancestry? Wouldn't we all like to have a little bit of control over where we came from? Jesus didn't have any control over that. You know, you can make those statements. It just doesn't wash. Um, Jesus fulfilled a lot of specific uh, prophecies about the Messiah. But if you really study it, 90% of them he had no control over. Now, some people make the argument that maybe it was just a coincidence that he fulfilled these prophecies. Maybe it's just kind of an accident that they all happened. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that perform studies. They're curious about crazy things. I don't know from like the ant populations or whatever. But there was a guy who studied this very uh, topic, the odds of Jesus fulfilling uh, prophecy by accident. And so his name was uh, Peter Stoner, and he was a scientist and mathematician, and he was chair of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College in California. Later on in his career, he'd be chair of the science department at Westmont College. And so this is not, you know, some fly-by-night guy. This guy knows his stuff. And so he attempted to work something out with 600 of his students. And what he was trying to, to figure out were the odds of Jesus fulfilling one biblical prophecy of the Messiah as a coincidence, like, like it was an accident. And what he came up with with this group is the odds of that happening for one prophecy to be fulfilled by coincidence is one in 400 million. One in 400 million. And, and then the group extrapolated that out and they tried to figure out what, what the odds would be of him fulfilling eight messianic prophecies. And the answer they came up with there was one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I'm not an engineer, but that's a big number. So I, I put the number up on the screen here. That's 10 with 17 zeros. I don't even know how to say that number. But that's some pretty, pretty high odds, right? I mean, it's almost unlikely. But here's the kicker. Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies about the coming Messiah. There were 61 specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from Old Testament Scripture. And I don't think that that's calculable to figure out what the odds are of that happening. And so Jesus fulfilled... Not a lot of, not some of, but all of the prophecies that the Bible talks about uh, in the Messiah, about the coming Messiah. And so if you think Jesus didn't live in the Old Testament, you're wrong. I mean, Jesus is throughout the entire Bible. So let's look at the last two statements that Jesus made. In John 19, it says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Luke's account says this in Luke 23. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said it, he breathed his last. And so something's been accomplished here. What has Jesus accomplished? I think to find that answer, we have to understand what God's plan was for his chosen people. For the Jews. And to fully understand that, I think we have to look back first to the beginning of man, and then we have to look back to the time of Moses. 
Because from the first time that sin entered the world, God required a sacrifice for our sins. And from the Moses times, God required an animal sacrifice. He instituted and ordained the system of sacrifice. In Genesis, it says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Some believe this was the first instance of an animal sacrifice because an animal had to die to cover the guilt and the shame of Adam and Eve, of man. And so animals had to die. Through Moses, this ordinance of animal sacrifice was given by God. And so these animals that were sacrificed for the person's sin couldn't have any blemishes, couldn't have any marks, couldn't have any imperfections, and that's because imperfection could only be covered by perfection, and that's by God Himself. And in this sacrifice, the animal for a brief time took on the sin of the people, but it only served as a temporary substitute. And that's because sin never ended. Sin kept rearing its ugly head again and again, and so the sacrifice had to be repeated. It wasn't permanent. And so this old sacrificial system was messy, and it was gruesome, and it was costly. The animals that that had to be brought forward were, were part of the people's living. It's how they lived. And so that's because sin is messy, and sin is gruesome, and it's very expensive. I think we can all attest to that. Now, some people think that this sacrificial system was a punishment. And I don't really believe that, because I believe that God is a just God. God is a good judge, so He can't turn a blind eye to sin. And so I think this was ordained for His people because He didn't want them to suffer the consequences of their sin. He doesn't want us to suffer the consequence of our sin. So he instituted this system, this sacrificial system, as a a way to offer mercy to his people. And so these sacrifices had to be made. uh, In the time of Moses, they had to to be made in the tabernacle. And that's a plan that God gave to Moses, a floor plan, so to speak. And I've got a picture up on the screen of what that might have looked like. And so this is kind of has a fence enclosure around it. If you'll see, there's a, an altar up front where the burnt offerings would be made. And there's a, there's, it looks like a bird bath there. It's called a mitzvah. And that's, that's for the purpose of ceremonial washing because you had to be ceremonially clean before you could enter that inner sanctum. And in that tented area is the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. And behind it is the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant existed behind a curtain behind a veil. And you, had to, you couldn't make these sacrifices yourself. You, the priest had to make these sacrifices. And the high priest, once a year, made sacrifices for the atonement of sin. And he alone could go into the Holy of Holies behind that curtain. And they would even tie a rope around this guy because if he came into the presence of God and he died, the other priest couldn't go in after him, so they would drag him out if that ever happened. And so that's what happened at the tabernacle. This, this kind of looks more like a tent than a temple, right? And that's because it had to be portable. They had to take it with them in their wandering. And so we see, we fast forward and we go to the first temple that was built by David's son Solomon. 
And I uh, got a picture of it as well, a, a rendering. And so as you can see, this is a permanent structure. And uh, this was said to be gilded. I mean, it was just covered with gold. It was very elaborate. You can see those small vessels of water and one big one. Those are mitzvahs. And those were for the purpose of ceremonial washing. And see the altar where the burnt offerings were offered. And in the back, it's cut away. But you can see the veil that covered the Holy of Holies. Again, where the presence of God existed in the Holy of Holies. And so the second, the, this first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, fast forward again to the second temple. I've got a picture here. I want to explain this a little bit. This is a photograph of a model uh, that I took at the Israeli Museum. This thing is massive. Uh, just to give you a little perspective, if you'll look towards the back in that retaining wall in the back, you can see that gray thing there. That's actually a door for a human to walk in and out of. And so it maybe gives you a little better idea of the scale of this thing. It's probably bigger than a football field. Uh, the entire city of Jerusalem as it would have been seen in the first century. And so this, what we're looking at, is the temple complex built by Herod the Great. And on the, on the left, if you're looking at the screen, you see the red roof there. That's what we know as Solomon's porch. That's probably where the tables, where Jesus overturned the tables and ran, ran off the merchants uh, when he was clearing the temple. Uh, in, in the middle there, you see what looks like that tabernacle, the permanent structure. And there's the courtyard outside. There's the temple there for the, for the burning of the offerings. And through that door is the inner sanctum. And at the very back, again, is the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt. There's a little fence on either side of that tabernacle, and it had a sign on it that said, if you're a Gentile, that if you went past that point, you were subject to be executed. And so those courts on either side are the court of women and the court of Gentiles. And so this was a very impressive structure to be built uh, when it was built. But this also was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And I've got another picture of you here that I took uh, at the southern end of what is now known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I want, to, I want to point you out to a couple of details. One, you kind of see a hard line uh, up on the wall there. Well, that, from that line below are part of the original Herodian stones that were built by Herod the Great. The rest of it above is reconstructed over the centuries. Jerusalem has been conquered and retaken so many times. It's been torn down and built over so many times that to get down to the first century... To, under, to, to the geology of Jesus, you have to go down uh, 30 or 40 feet. And if you see in the background, you see the embankment. That shows you how much this has been excavated to get down to this level. Now that pile of rocks in the back, the pile of stone, those are stones from the Temple Mount that the Romans toppled. They laid there just as they did from 70 A.D. And the pavers that they're laying on, those stones, that's original first century streets of Jerusalem. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus walked on those streets. Now, how do they know the, uh, what they know from what they dug? This is a fairly recent excavation. Uh, up and above this, just to let you know, is the western wall where the Jews pray. But how do they know it? The next picture is some archaeological evidence. This is actually a capstone that was on the top of the original wall of, Herodian, of the Herodian temple. 
And it was the place where the priest would go and blow the horn to call the Jews to worship. And how they know that is there's actually an inscription on the stone that identifies it as that location. And again, that's exactly where it fell in 70 AD. It hasn't been moved. They decided to leave it there and not move it to a museum. And so it, it's just rich with history. And so I'm gonna, there's another picture I want to show you of the Western Wall. And this is a very popular place, a very uh, holy place. It's a Jewish holy site. And this is where the Jews go. If you're, if you're Jewish and you're practicing orthodoxy, if you're practicing the traditions of Judea, you are supposed to make a pilgrimage to the wall at some time in your life. And if there's people in your town or your village that can't go, uh, you're supposed to carry their written prayers and stick them in the stones of the wall. And so the reason the Jews pray here is because just up on the top and over to the left was where they believed the temple used to be located, the temple complex and the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. See, they believe that God is, his, his essence is still there. His presence is still there. And so by going to this wall, it's, it's the best way they can get close to God. This was about 10 o'clock at night. There were still people there. It's 24-7. It goes on on the Sabbath or what they call the Shabbat in Hebrew. Uh, this place is packed. I mean, thousands of people, thousands of Jews who come to pray. And I've got one more picture. This is actually me standing at the wall. Uh, I think this is a solemn place of prayer. You know, I was wearing a, the kapat or what we call a yarmulke, and it's simply because they won't let you in without a hat. Jewish sites, hats on. Catholic sites, hats off. So you had to remember that when you were in, in Israel. But I believe even though it's a holy, reverent place of prayer, I don't believe that we're required to go there uh, because God doesn't exist in the stones uh, of that wall. God exists, we know, in our hearts, and that's because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I one more picture to show you. This is the... Uh, the Dome of the Rock. This sits on top of the, the, the temple complex or the temple mount now. It's actually an, a Muslim shrine. And it's said to be uh, built over Mount Moriah or the rock where Abraham offered up Isaac. And so that's important to, the, to Islam. Uh, but this is, I can't show you the golden gate here, uh, but where the priests go up. But it, in Josephus' description, when you look from the Mount of Olives, this was taken from Garden of Gethsemane. When you look through the Mount of Olives, you should be able to look through that gate and see into the Holy of Holies. Now, the Jews have an argument that this shrine is not actually built on the spot where the temple was built because currently when you look through that gate, it doesn't line up. It's off to the right. And so it's their argument to reclaim the Temple Mount to build the third temple. And there's actually a society called the Third Temple Society in Jerusalem. They have a museum there, and they're preparing for the construction of the Third Temple. They built a large golden menorah that replicates what would have been uh, in the temple. They're actually raising herds of red heifers preparing for sacrifice. And so they're, they're getting ready uh, for that. And so a lot of people say that if that ever happens, if they retake, because the Temple Mount right now is occupied by Jordanian Muslims. And so if they ever try and retake the Temple Mount, which they claim they're going to do, it'll be the start of World War III. And so Jesus 
said it was finished. Jesus accomplished something. What did he finish? What did he accomplish? I think we can find the answer to that in the book of Luke. And this is when Jesus was on the cross. It says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. And then he breathed his last. So what Jesus accomplished is in these verses, the veil was torn in two. And we can't overlook that. Remember the veil, the curtain that separated the, the, the inner sanctum of the temple to the Holy of Holies. The presence of God was beyond that veil. And we had no access. The Jews had no access. Only through an intermediary. Only they couldn't approach God. But now what Jesus did, what He accomplished, is that veil is torn in two. It's done. We have direct access to a living God. Those sacrifices that I was talking about, those animals took on the guilt of the person that the animal was being sacrificed for, but Jesus took on the guilt and the sin of everybody who had lived before and everybody who was living then and everybody who's living after, which is us. Jesus took on those sins and He died for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice. He had no mark. He had no blemish. Everybody who will call out His name and believe that He's who He claims to be, the Son of God, has direct access to a living God. We don't require a go-between anymore. Jesus is the solution, the final solution. He is the high priest forever. He is it. And that's what Jesus finished. That's what He accomplished on the cross. Some of the most beautiful verses are in Hebrew, Hebrew chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, when it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Folks, all Christians are saved because Jesus finished well. Jesus conquered sin on the cross. Next week, we're going to celebrate something else that Jesus accomplished. That Jesus conquered death so that we can have an eternal life, not just access to God, but that we can be with God in eternity. Next week's a big week. I think every one of us, we have people in our, what I call our circle of influence. We have co-workers. We have family. We have friends. We know people that are Christians. We know people that are lost. Next week would be a perfect time to invite them to church. It'd be a perfect time to invite them to hear the gospel. For whatever reason, people are more willing to come on that day. And what a powerful day it's going to be. When we have a dedicated baptism Sunday.
Can you imagine what someone going through whatever their struggles are, struggling with what they believe? Can you imagine what a witness that is to see people beginning their journey like Jake said earlier? Our mission is to help move people on a simple journey toward Jesus, and we want to do that because we love God, we love people, and we want to make disciples that make disciples. And to, to next week would be a great start. And so please, I encourage you, let people know. Invite your friends. Make it easy for them to come. Now I've got a question for you in wrapping this up. Jesus finished well. Do you want to finish well? And maybe you've been at this church thing for a long time. Maybe your whole life. Maybe you've dismissed a whole lot of what Jesus accomplished. And today would be a great time to to renew that spirit. Nobody's going to stand up here and say, you can earn what Jesus has got to offer. That's not possible. But all you have to do is just accept him and accept his will for your life. Maybe you're here and you've never accepted Jesus. You've never called him your Lord and Savior. And man, I just beg you, don't leave today without making that happen. Again, you're not going to clean yourself up. Randy said that last week. You're not going to clean yourself up. You're not ever going to be good enough. Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. And so we would love to pray that prayer with you. I would love to do that. And how this is going to happen is we're going to sing one more song, and I'm just going to stand up here. And uh, if you want to come up and talk to me about... uh, what Jesus is moving in your heart. If you want to, call, if you want to give him your, your, your life today, I'd love to walk you through that. But also anybody uh, that wants to come up, whatever your prayers are, I don't want to be up here alone. Come up and join me. And let's just pray and give thanks uh, to the living God. Let's, let's give thanks to him. And if you want to stand up and continue to sing as we wrap this service up, uh, gosh, I would love it if you would do that. Would you all pray with me as we prepare to get back into worship together? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for today. We thank you for your blessings, but we thank you most for your Son. Lord, as we've talked about these things that he said on the cross, Lord, they're powerful. The words that he said are powerful, but what he did, what he accomplished, is even greater. God, we love you. We ask you to prepare our hearts as we enter back into a time of worship, and we ask you to prepare us as we uh, get ready to celebrate uh, the greatest thing that ever happened, and that's the resurrection of Christ. God, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.